You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. To 1 Samuel chapter 2. Still in chapter 2. Working our way through it. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 22 in particular. If you want to begin turning there, find that place in your scriptures. I have a couple pictures from last week, actually of the same of Micah, uh, two sides of the picture. So we've got the one here. On the one side is, will you take the gift that God has given? I don't know if this came, we were talking about um, Eli's sons as being worthless, and then maybe that tie-in really to all of us who are worthless, we've gone astray and we have sinned. And the question here, will you take the gift that God has given through Christ, this salvation? There's a little note, turn the page. So the next picture on the other side says, because Jesus is going to come back. He is returning. Are you ready for His return? Awaiting Him. Not just the, the freedom from sickness, which is going around, and, and however even greater sickness there is. Not even just walking on streets of gold or the things of heaven, but Jesus Himself that we will join with throwing our crowns, worshiping Him for who He is. pray that's your hope. So thank you, Micah, for that picture. Well, hopefully by now you're in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. I want to read here this morning just all the way to the end of the chapter. So through verse 36. So let's listen to God's Word before we dive into it. Now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this 
shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Let's look to the Lord again. Father, as we enter into this text and the different things that are spoken of here, would you help us to be students of your word, to be learning, to be thoughtful? Each one of us, Lord, that has the Bible open before us, help us to see what is here, to be thinking about it in the, with the minds you've given us, testing it, chewing on it, Lord. And, and, but let us not go away today, Lord, with mere knowledge and a, a mere information that we've studied a few more verses. May we come away beholding you, beholding your true intercession in Christ, your glory. So help us to see you through the very text we're in and see even our condition before you. So guide us here. We're praying for your spirit to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it must have been the talk of Shiloh. News traveled fast, but in this case, the news didn't have to travel fast because the news came up probably every year as everyone came up to the sacrifices. And that news centered on those two sons, these two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, and all the evil that they were doing. Evil in the very place where God was to meet with His people through the priesthood. That's where the evil was taking place. And eventually this news would come to the the old, the aged ears of Eli, the priest. And he heard, he he couldn't not hear about it because everybody was telling him. And perhaps one question, maybe, in particular, loomed before the people. Here's the question. Because of their great sin, great sin by priests nonetheless, would God even accept their sacrifice, the people's sacrifice? And if not their sacrifice, what, 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 what about their sin then? If the priest was to be the one interceding for the people and the priest was corrupt, who would intercede before them, before God? Or for them, before God? And so the priesthood here is a mess. And the question is, who will intercede? And this is the dark picture painted by the text here of life in Shiloh. Life under a corrupt, a wicked priesthood, led by an aged old man, can't seem to control his sons and reprimand them, and he heard the reports. And even verse 22 here adds to their sins already, cataloged that we looked at last week, verses 13 through 17, here telling us they would even lay with the women serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So they not only treat the Lord's offerings in an irreverent, a blasphemous way, but now even their dealings with the women that were there to serve the Lord. And so finally, maybe yes, finally here, Eli approaches his sons. Let's pick up the text in verse 23 through 24 here, where he says to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. 
know my sons. It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. And again, verse 22, if we back up, has given us some details about the reports that he's hearing in his old age. They, again, they not only treat with contempt and disres- or disrespect, maybe another word for contempt, they disrespect these sacrifices, the offerings that were being made. Eli hears now of how they're even laying with the women. Again, the women sent, serving at this tent of meaning. So even beyond the blasphemy of these off- offerings is just this, the immorality of the priesthood that is, that is here. And this particular sin, this sexual immorality in the midst of the service of God, it's a good reason to just pause here for a, for a minute. And I want to speak to you here, locally, in our church, men and women, as you minister together in the church. I say this because too, too many stories exist of improper or inappropriate relationships that come out in churches of all places. Not just those at the tent of meeting, but and in churches. And it's a place where we ought to enjoy working together and, and interacting and striving towards this goal of worship and serving the Lord. But it can also be a place of subtle temptation and a slow drift of finding maybe in someone here something that's lacking maybe in your own, in your own marriage. And I'm getting personal, and it's a personal quite subject here. But I just want to encourage you with this today. As we come to this particular section to implore you, implore me, be on guard for these things. Be on guard in your relationships with the opposite sex as we work together for the glory of God here even in this church. And I don't mean this means we can't talk to one another or enjoy serving together, laugh, all those sorts of things. We don't need to assume the the worst motives of everybody. But what is true of everybody that attends here? We are sinners saved by grace, but we're sinners. And that remaining sin stays with us. We fight it. So I just want to encourage you, be on guard. Establish maybe some hedges that would protect your own marriages or your relationships from becoming something like verse 22. And maybe that means, and maybe, I don't know, women, if you notice, sometimes my conversations with you are, are shorter. There's a reason to not linger and have a long time. Sometimes we need to talk and there's places to do that. But maybe it means shorter conversations. I don't know. I'm not, there's a couple ideas. Maybe sometimes or maybe often you include on a text to somebody of the opposite sex, include a, your spouse along with that text is a good, helpful way. Or, or even asking your spouse, hey, do you, the way I act at church, do you, do you see anything compromising in my life? Am I, any subtle ways? So just hear the Hear that guarding that we wouldn't be like this, like these Hophni and Phineas. And again, the, the slow, to be cautious of the slow fate, you say, no way, you know, we're not like that. But those things, little by little, so just to check on each of our hearts, little by little, are there areas of compromise? Okay, well, Eli and essentially Hophni and Phineas here, these priests were to be holy. They were to be consecrated to the Lord. But again, their their garments are stained greatly with sin. So even for them to be alive right now, that is by the sheer grace of God, that they're alive at this point for their father even to give them this warning. 
But with their sin in mind, let's look at what Eli says to them in verse 25. Let me just read the first kind of half of it here. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Eli, first, he makes a point that if one sins against a man, God will mediate for him. Now, I don't know if your scriptures have it, but another way of looking at this, I've got it um, capitalized God. The Hebrew is Elohim, but there's also a way to, to see this as God or God's appointed judge. So someone sins against a man, God or his appointed judge will mediate for him. Uh, one commentary says, for, for man's offenses against his fellow man, there is a third superior party to arbitrate and rectify the wrongs, namely God or God's representative. So in this case, there seems, at least what we read, there seems to be hope for the sinner, but it's Eli's second point that, that kind of makes us pause again and, and stop. What's his second point? If someone sins against the Lord, conditional, if somebody sins, then who can intercede for him? And so the sins of these young men, they clearly fit in this category, sins against the Lord. Verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. So the priest, the one who was to intercede for the people to God, is sinning against God himself. And so a question here, even with Eli's question, isn't all sin against the Lord, ultimately. Isn't that true? Isn't every sin against the Lord? Yes, we see this in Scripture. Most, what came to my mind, maybe what comes to your mind, is David in Psalm 51, verse 4. He confesses to God there. He says, against you. Remember his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite? And, but he says, against you, you only, the Lord, that's who he's speaking to, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, So what is Eli getting at in this, if someone sins against the Lord, then who can intercede? Almost is answering like, no one can. What's he getting at? And I I think it helps. It's a a challenging portion here. So I'm going to just honestly with, yeah, it's it's challenging to sort some of this out. But I I think one thing that helps is to consider the sin of the the priests, the context here. It's, It's not just sins against the Lord per se, but there's a contempt, there's a disrespect of the very offerings meant to atone for sin or symbolize that. There's a sexual immorality with who? The women whose purpose was to serve the Lord. It's it's just such mockery of the, the priesthood itself. Matthew Henry writes, he says, sins against the remedy, the atonement itself, are most dangerous. Sins against the remedy. So they're they're... Even the offering to atone for sin is they're, they're sinning with this type of offering, the, the, the fork and all those sorts of things. Well, in some of my searching, I found something helpful, a little extended quote from John Gill, an old dead guy. So that's good. We, we like old dead guys. I mean, in that way, they're good to read. And, uh, even, I think he's 100 years before Charles Spurgeon, which would maybe put him in 1750s. Some, I don't know, somewhere around there. He says this. He comments. He says, all sin is in some sense against God as it is contrary to his nature. 
and a breach of his law, and especially bold, daring, presumptuous sins. I think maybe kind of what these priests were doing. But there are some sins that are more immediately and particularly against God, as sins against the first table of the law. By table, he means the first part of the commandments. Usually, I think that's commandments 1 through 4. He says, um, which relate to the worship of God. And such were the sins of Eli's sons in the affair of sacrifices. All sin against God is aggravated by the perfections of his nature and made tremendous, I think he means tremendously sinful, as being against a God of strict justice, of unspotted purity and holiness, who is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and by the relation and connection there is between God and men, He's their creator and preserver, the God of their lives and mercies, and of all the blessings they enjoy, and yet sin against Him. Who will entreat the favor of God for such persons? So He's kind of making a comparison to sin and what sin means, the tremendousness of that sin before a holy, pure, omnipotent, omniscient God. He says, who will entreat the favor of God for such persons? Ask pardon for them and beseech the Lord to be propitious and merciful to them. Who on earth will do it? Such persons are scarce and rare. Few care to stand up in the gap between God and sinners. In some cases, they ought not. In others, they cannot. Eli suggests by this question that he could not, even for his own sons, And who in heaven can or will do it? In one sense, Eli's question ought to penetrate our own hearts as we think about this. Rather than presuming upon God's, he's just a loving God, he's gracious, it's good to stop and ask, is there any to intercede between my sin and this holy God? Who can mediate my sin? And if that answer is no one, we are lost and doomed. Totally lost. But Gil continues regarding this intercession. He says, who in heaven can or will do it? On the one hand, he says, not not saints departed. Not departed saints who know nothing of what is done below. Nor angels. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator between God and men who has engaged his heart to approach unto God and interpose between him and sinful men and has made peace and reconciliation by his blood and is become the propitiation for sin and ever lives to make intercession for transgressors and is always prevalent and successful in his mediation and intercession. Accepting him, Gil says, there is none to entreat for those that have sinned against the Lord. There's only one. One. It's not a list. It's not an option. It's not 50. I'll take something. One, one, one intercessor. Hebrews 7, 23-25 says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He, Christ, He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. And verse 25 says, 
Consequently, because since this is the case, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost. Who? Those who draw near to Him, near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. It's a sure intercession in Christ. Always. Abraham needed an intercessor. David, a man after God's own heart, needed an intercessor. And they looked by faith to the one we see revealed in the New Testament. Sinners have no intercession but the Lord Jesus Christ. But for Hophni and Phinehas here, back in our text, they had scorned the very shadows of atonement that Christ fulfilled. And so the second part of verse 25 reveals God's will for these boys. Look at the second part of verse 25. It tells us, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And it seems quite clear here that these sons, they would not listen to the rebuke of their father. It's a scary place to be, but it was God's will that they would not listen. Their hardening here was of God. If you go, whoa, what, what's going on with that? Wayne Grudem, theologian, helps us go, this took place elsewhere as well. He would point out places in Scripture we see the, the hardening of God. There's, there's Pharaoh's hardening. You think of that. Maybe that's the most prominent. His hardening. Yes, in his own sin, he, he hardens his heart towards God. We see that. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then we also see God hardens his heart. In Joshua chapter 11, verse 20, the text speaks there of, of Israel's enemies coming in battle. Here's this scene of Israel's enemies coming upon them in battle. Listen to why they're coming. What's going on with their heart? It says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. For what purpose? In order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Maybe in a different way, a different side of this, you might remember Judges chapter 14 where where we saw there Samson marries an unbelieving Philistine. That was not a good marriage. That was not a good match. Not something he should be doing. But the text says, for it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God had a plan. God sinful in this? Not at all. He's righteous, but his plan moves in all sorts of ways so that Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. His will is supreme. We call it sovereign. And in this case, God himself has hardened these sons to the point of death. But then we could ask, and we might ask on the flip side, well, well, if that's the case, were they responsible for their sin? I mean, they're not listening. God's making them not listen. Could they, could they re, you know, refute that? Well, yes, they were responsible. That's what the text is showing us, all the text. There, there's, there's, inter, there's no intercession. There's a warning here. There's rebuke. There's sins. Again, verse 17, very great in the sight of God. They, they are aimed as the ones sinning in this situation. And yet, did God ordain their very hardened state under their death? Yes, that's also what the text says. And so, ultimately, God 
put them to death. It was His will to do so. But that is not apart from, it's fully in line with what? Their own sin and wickedness that deserved that death. And so in this case, God delights, or He's pleased to, that's another way to say it, He's pleased to put them, the will of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord, to put them to death. That's hard for us to hear. We might think, does the Lord take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Well, you, there we've got Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Says, God says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So there's God pleasing to put them to death, and then he takes no part in the pleasure, or takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I think in, in the Ezekiel 18 portion, there's a clear call for the wicked. The, the wicked one who would say, well, God's determined that I should die, so I'm just going to die. I'm not really responsible, and that's how he said it's going to be, and if he delights to kill me, fine. But that's not the whole counsel of God. Here, God is, uh, it, there's a call for, for that wicked one, turn and repent. Turn and repent. That's the call. To the wicked, turn and repent. But even, Acts 11 would tell us, even that very repentance is brought about by God Himself. It's His grace working there. Let me just tell you this morning, for us, if you see your sin before God, repent, turn. That's grace that you see it and then turn to Christ. But for for those that persist in sin, and this is the warning here, I think, there comes a time It's known by God. It's ordained by God when that wickedness will be punished by a righteous and holy God. Do not tempt God along and say, I'll get to this another day. I'll deal with my sins later. Deal with them now, in the now. Turn while it's called today. And and it's interesting here how this particular point in this passage, I think it fits with what we've already seen in Hannah's prayer and looks back on it. Remember we read there, the Lord kills. The Lord brings to life. He, he lifts up. He puts down. And in all of this, God is, Hannah says, there is none holy like the Lord. So we, we rest on that say, is this a, an evil sort of God? No, He's good and righteous. Everything. And yet He's sovereign at the same time. Taking no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but also pleased that these two sons would die. So Eli's sons here are bound to die for their, their own sin while the remedy of repentance has been closed to them. Let's just here consider, contemplate for a moment the weight of your sin. Not the sin of someone near you or the sins you can think of of the world out there, but the weight of your own sin before a holy God. Let us not presume upon God's kindness like He's going to forever be patient ah, some, someday. That's, I, that's, just, that's the God I worship. He just loves and He'll look, it over, he'll look past it. I, part of this made me think of a, the, the spider illustration of Jonathan Edwards, if you've ever read, in the hand, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, he likened us as sinners to spiders being hung over a, over a flame. That's, that's, how, that's how thin a line it is between us and the rightful punishment we deserve for sin. It says this, 
I won't read you the whole sermon. He says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you, and it's dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in His sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in His eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You've offended Him infinitely. More than ever a stubborn rebel did His prince. And yet it is nothing but His hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given, given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking His pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Cutting words. Convicting words. Hophni and Phinehas, and I say us too, without a gracious work of God, do we see our sin for how bad it really is? We do not deserve Christ. We do not deserve salvation or any longer. We don't deserve our life from this holy God. And yet He does not give us what our sins deserve by His grace and mercy. And so on the heels of this pronouncement, look at verse 26 where it says, Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. There's a whisper here amidst the, the great sin of Hophni and Phinehas. And there's Samuel. He's growing in the favor, stature of the Lord. This, the, the Dale Ralph Davis takes us to this whisper of this, this hope here. So death has been pronounced on these two lads of Eli. Two boys who are in sin against God. But there stands Samuel, kind of this snapshot of hope amidst the darkness of the priesthood at this time. But then I want to connect this one to who would come years later, born of a virgin, born to save his people from their sins, Matthew tells us. Jesus. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 says of Jesus, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. If we connect here kind of this, this fading priesthood of Eli and his sons, and there's this counter-growth of Samuel, growing in stature and favor with the Lord and for man, and then we, we see distantly out a greater fulfillment, a greater prophet, priest, and king named Jesus Christ who would come and be our only intercessor. Now, I read this entire section, and at this point you think we're only halfway through, but we're going we're gonna to pause here. Um, I thought, or almost all week long, I thought we'll just go through the whole section. We're just going to pause here. And just a few concluding comments 
and we'll pick it back up next week. Um, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. So the rest of uh, Samuel that we read but we didn't study here kind of, I think, has, again, this theme of this priesthood and this declining priesthood of Eli and, and a more sure priesthood. And we'll, we'll look at it again, and, and I assume we'll probably be back in Hebrews again next week because it's got these connections of the priesthood of Israel to this greater, lasting priesthood of Christ. And so if you come to Hebrews chapter 9 and find verse... 24, there's multiple places you could go. This is one of multiple places where we just see this greater fulfillment in Christ. But I'll just read 24 through 28 here. Twenty-four says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, that's kind of what we've been talking about with the Jonathan Edwards' sermon and the judgment and the spider and the, the scariness of our sin. Verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Who will intercede before God? Who will bear the awful load of our guilt and our sin? The One who has suffered here once to bear the sins of many. You perceive judgment awaits you in your sin. You see that. That's, a, that's God's grace to even see that. And what do you do with that? Repent and turn today and run to the cross where that sins and our great sins Christ has died for. He's bore our sins, bore our punishment on the cross that we might live with Him, we might be forgiven forever. Let's pray. Father, the glory of your intercession is way more than our, our little minds even understand today. Even for us, been given knowledge of this, your grace has worked in our hearts to reveal these things by your Spirit. Even then, Lord, we're so limited, limited to see the, the heinousness of our own sin. the scariness that it ought to be to ask who can intercede before God. And then our our lack of truly understanding the greatness of your intercession graciously for us in Christ. 
Lord, I pray as our week goes on, as our day goes on, I pray for those here that have been just toying with God, coming to church, opening a Bible every now and then, saying the right things, but have not truly repented of sin and turned to Christ. May that be their story today on this March 3rd, that they looked with faith on Christ and so found everlasting joy, everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we who know you also recount what you have done in our lives. For, for we too are spiders hung over hell, be it not for your grace in Christ. May we love you more and worship you for this great gift. In your name we pray. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.